I wonder how you would feel if, at the beginning of this sermon, I were to stand up and say something like the following. Uh, The passage this sermon is based on isn't actually in the Bible. I mean, it's a true story, as far as we can tell, about Jesus. It doesn't teach us anything wrong about Jesus. In fact, there are lots of other passages in the Bible that do speak to the things that we see. It's a story that has meant a lot to many people over the history of the church. But it's not actually part of the Scripture. But anyway, here's my first P, regardless. And I would dive into my three or more Ps at that point. I wonder what you would think if I said something like that. I hope that you would be concerned. I hope that you would be pretty perturbed if I said something like that. Why? Because this time that we're in just now is to be about us seeking the revelation of God. That is to say, what God has revealed to us as being essential about life in Him through the hearing of His Word and through the the teaching and the proclamation and the receiving of His Word, the Word of God. Now, there's loads of other good things that we can and should do throughout the week in in understanding what it means to live faithfully as a follower of Jesus. But at this time, at least once a week, as one of the fundamental things that we are to be about as the people of God, this time is about hearing and responding to the person of Jesus Christ as He is revealed in the Holy Scriptures. And what a gift that is, friends, that we have these scriptures to do that. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, some of you maybe knew I was going to go there first. 2 Timothy chapter 3, the scriptures are referred to us as, from verse 15, I'm reading, it says, uh, these sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then we get these follow-on wonderful words, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And that's what's special about this time, because we are able to hear direct from God, from His Word, from these words that are inspired of God, breathed out from Him to us. And let me say clearly, and I've said this before, you should only listen to me or any other preacher in this church to the degree that we are seeking to, we're never going to be perfect at this, but seeking to faithfully share what God has put before us in these scriptures. And we together in this time throughout the week, we should be continually testing to see for ourselves together, we don't just do this as individuals, but together as the people of God, to test whether what is preached is true according to the Bible. And I have to say, as a preacher, this is wonderful news for me. This is so liberating for me because when I'm able to say, look, friends, look here, look at what it says, look at what God is saying to us through John, as we've been looking at, or through David, or through Paul, or through Jeremiah. Look, it's not what I'm saying this morning, but it's what God's Word is saying That's so liberating, so freeing, so wonderful 
not, I mean, I have zero wisdom to offer you this morning, but God has so much good stuff to say to us. And this is what we're to be about. And that's not to say that it doesn't take work for us all to carefully interpret, to understand, to hear well, to study well, of course. But that's what we are to be about. And, and, and it's for that reason that if I were to stand up here and share a sermon based on something other than these scriptures, you should be asking Colin Dennis and Colin Ross to pull forward my annual review to urgently be happening this coming week. Do you guys know that? I have an annual review. So any feedback, speak to Colin Dennis, and uh, he'll channel that back to me in a wonderfully encouraging way, of course, right? Um, but, you know, if I, were to, if I were to just be standing up here, you know, speaking forth about whatever I choose, my goodness speak to these guys and get them to get them to meet with me ASAP. Now what on earth does this have to do with our sermon series in John today? Well the problem is that there is no passage in John today. <laughs> That's provocatively put, but you'll see what I mean. As best as I can tell from studying and reading and listening to people who are way smarter than I am, the verses that we have for us today shouldn't be in our Bible. John chapter 7, verse 53, to John chapter 8, verse 11. One New Testament scholar, Daniel Wallace, wrote an article on this passage and entitled it, I love this, my favorite passage that's not in the Bible. <laughs> I think that captures some of the tension that we face as we come to these verses. Because this, the story of the woman caught in adultery, that's what it's titled in my Bible here. This is a, a brilliant story. It's a famous and powerful story. It's a story that illustrates loads of wonderful, true things about Jesus. And in fact, it's very probably more than just a story. Don Carson, New Testament scholar, writes this, there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. And many other scholars would agree with him, granted with varying degrees of conviction. And they would agree with the church for many centuries, which has held this story to be true. But that does not get us away from the fact that this story, and this is what we're talking about just now, almost certainly was not part of the God-breathed gospel account that the Holy Spirit inspired John to write. Now, if you're looking at your Bible, which I hope you are, you will be able to see that they are making an effort to make this clear to us. So in my Bible, I'm, I've got the ESV here. At the end of verse 52, there's a square bracket within which it says, the earliest manuscripts do not include... 7.53 to 8.11. Then in the passage itself, there are it's two square brackets at the start and two square brackets at the end. And they have also, just for good measure, lest we stumble, they have also added a wee footnote saying some other places that this passage has turned up. Other versions include a solid line break before and after the passage. Some have indented it. Some have even tried making the, the text a little bit smaller, as one writer I was reading this week said, so it's harder to read from the pulpit. <laughs> All these different efforts that are being made to make clear that there's something going on with this passage. Um, increasingly, there is a push 
for these verses to be removed altogether from the main text and added as a footnote. Now, some of you might remember, if you were here some weeks ago, we saw an example of this in chapter 5. If you turn over there just now, and you might remember I, I briefly flagged this in, in, in that sermon, and I said that we would be coming back to these things in chapter 8, because if you look at verse 3 in chapter 5, and then look to the next verse, what do you see? goes from verse 3 to verse 5. And what has happened is verse 4 has been relegated to a footnote. It just says, some manuscripts insert, holy or in part. And that's what many feel should happen to these verses in John chapter mainly 8. I'll just call it 8. I know it's 7.53 to 8.11, but I'll just call it the start of chapter 8. Why? Why do many feel that's what should happen? Well, um, or why has that not happened yet? It's because of what this gentleman, Daniel Wallace, New Testament scholar, he describes as, quote, a long-standing tradition of timidity among those people who produce God's Word. Apparently, one 20th century translation relegated the passage to the footnote, but the sales of that particular Bible were so lackluster that they returned it to the main text sometime later on. Now, why am I flagging all this? For a number of reasons. Partly because there's a, a bit of a dilemma for a preacher when they come across these words, and I just want to be honest about that. There's a brilliant article, if you're interested in this, by a guy called Timothy Miller in Thamelios that lays out 11 different ways a preacher might respond to these verses. Um, and I commend that article to you. Come and you know, hit me up and I'll send you a link if you're interested. But more importantly... It gives us a chance, the reason I want to flag it so that we might perhaps explain how this has come about. And as we do that, I really believe that we can find great encouragement and great confidence in the scriptures. And perhaps we can find help from when we come across other confusing moments as we read the Bible. Sometimes it's just better to deal head on with something rather than pretending that there isn't an issue. <laughs> and I figure if the ESV is going to throw six square brackets at us and a bunch of all caps at us and footnotes and lines and all the rest of it, then it's better to just talk about it. And we will see, I hope, by God's grace, that this is nothing to be concerned about. In fact, that we can be honest about this, I hope, will help us to have wonderful confidence in the power and the wonder of the rest of the Scripture. So here's the plan. We're going to look at how the Bible comes to us, the amazing confidence we can have in it. Then we're going to look very briefly at why these verses shouldn't be considered part of the canon, the, the, the standard uh, understanding of what the Scriptures are. And then we're finally going to see, as we close, the, one, the, the, the wonderful things we can know about Jesus that this passage can serve to illustrate to us in a, in a wonderful and a powerful way. So, the amazing confidence we can have in the Scriptures. What we have here, either a printed Bible or uh, the pixels that you're looking at just now on your screen or the words that sometimes come on the projection screen behind us, these are I guess for the most part, maybe some of you are looking at different translations, but these are for the most part English translations uh, of, of an originally written Greek text. 
And I'm speaking about the New Testament here. Uh, and uh, when, when I say Greek, I'm not talking about sort of classical Greek, which we would think of when we think of great academic works and things like this. Uh, the, the, the New Testament was written in what's called Koine Greek, which is common Greek. It was the Greek that people would speak, you know, if you weren't well-educated in day-to-day life. And that's the way the Scriptures come to us. You know, John, when he wrote his gospel, did not originally write it in a Word document and then eventually save it as a PDF and email it to us. That's not how it happened. It was written down. Now, what happens when God, by the Holy Spirit, inspires John in the first century to write down the story of Jesus on a likely papyrus? Well, over time, that papyrus is going to decompose. So the original words that John himself wrote down, inspired by the Holy Spirit, those no longer exist. But they were copied carefully copied, painstakingly copied, time and time again. And it's those copies that were used to bring us these printed Bibles from around the start of the 16th century. The printing press came and the first Bible by Erasmus was printed and on to this point is how we have our scriptures. Now, this is the case for every ancient document. And one of the things we should know and celebrate about the Bible is that the the scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, the Bible stands totally alone among all ancient documents in terms of the authenticity and reliability of what we now read. So, Tim, I wonder if you could flash up the first slide and just let me deal with this. There's a dangling spider there which was bothering me, so it's now gone. So, As we think about this, here are some of the key things that we need to consider uh, when we look at ancient documents. Down the left-hand column there is, uh, we're going to look at some various historical works. Then we're going to look at what the date, uh, roughly, that those works were written. And then the key thing that we want to think about are the number of copies that there are of any given document. And then also what's called the temporal distance. That's years to the earliest copy. So how many years are there between the earliest copy and the original. And then we're also going to want to think about what's the quality of these copies? How aligned are they? So I'm going to give some example of other ancient documents and then look at the New Testament because that's what we're looking at today. The Old Testament, it's a similar story, but it's just different data, but we're looking at the New Testament today. So I wonder if you could flash up the next slide, Tim. Thank you. So I can't read that, so I'm going to turn around. So here we have some of you, you learned, very clever people among us, will know some of these names and will have studied these great works of history, I'm sure. Livy. Uh, So he was uh, 59 BC to AD 17, and it's about 300 years from that point to the earliest copy we have of his work. How many copies do we have of that work? Roughly 20. These words are rough. The different scholars pick and choose how they land, but we're, we're going with these numbers just now. I've actually chosen to be conservative in how I've put these up. 27 copies of Livy's work. Tacitus, he was writing AD 56 to 120. The earliest copy we have was 750 years after that, and there are three copies of Tacitus' work. Suetonius, much of what we know about ancient Rome is through the historian Suetonius, uh, 75 to 100 AD, and it was 800 years and before we saw the earliest copy of his work, and there are a lot of copies, about 200 plus. Thucydides, 
460 to 400 BC, and it was 500 years after that time that we have the earliest fragment of a copy of that work. And there are about 20 copies of his work. And then many of you will have heard of or perhaps studied Homer's Iliad, and it's actually got an incredible number of, uh, it's incredibly well attested, that work. So it was 900 BC, and around about 500 years later, we have the earliest copy from, from that time, and there are 643 various copies of Homer's work. And then Julius Caesar's Gallic Wars, written 58 to 50 BC, and it was 900 years later uh, that we have the earliest copy of that work, and there are 10 copies. Now, so, so you can see you, see, you see the point, when it was written, how long the gap between when it was written and the first copy, and how many copies do we now have that have been, that have been found over the days? Now, Tim, if you can jump on to the next one. Here's the New Testament. Written around 50 to 100 AD, and just 250 or 300 years from that point to the earliest copy of the whole New Testament, the Codex Sinticus it's called. And look at the number of copies of texts that we have of the New Testament. If you're talking about those written in Greek, there are 5,800 different fragments, different copies of various parts of the New Testament. Once you add in Latin and uh, many other Coptic and different languages like that, there are an an additional 20,000, which brings you to a total of 25,000 copies of various parts of the New Testament. Absolutely incredible. One article I read said this, copies of average ancient Greek or Latin author's writings number, this is an average, fewer than 20 manuscripts. Thus, the New Testament has well over a thousand times as many manuscripts as the works of the average classical author. And you know that from Before 400 AD, there are 99 manuscripts that still exist that were written before 400 AD, including the oldest complete New Testament, Codus Sinaiticus, which was in the middle of the fourth century. Just incredible. Let's just leave that up for a little while. No other ancient book comes close to this in terms of the historical authenticity of what has been handed down to us. And and here's another interesting thing. Even if all these fragments, all these copies, manuscripts were destroyed, the New Testament could be reproduced almost entirely by quotations written in sermons or commentaries or logs of the early church fathers. Remarkable, incredible. Now, the next question is how accurate are those copies. You know, five and a half thousand Greek manuscripts all saying totally different things would not be the most encouraging reality, would it? So actually what happens is the more copies that you have, it brings in greater complexity to the, to the reality. But here again, friends, we can have incredible confidence in the accuracy of the New Testament. Now there are, as you would expect, lots of variations across the copies. But the largest group of these variations are spelling errors, or what is known as nonsense errors. So this is basically when one of the copyists was feeling a little bit sleepy and hadn't had enough coffee or Red Bull, and just made a wee mistake as he was copying one text to another. So for example, there's a funny one in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 7. 
Uh, Paul says there, we were gentle among you. And you'll have a little footnote which says either gentle or like infants among you. And that's an example of they don't quite know which one is right, (laughs) but they do know that one of those versions wasn't right. There's another Greek word, so gentle, like infants. These Greek words are very close. There's another word that's very close to that in the Greek, and it was translated like this in one of the manuscripts. We were like horses among you. Now, that's not correct. They've ruled that one out, so they've not added that to the footnote just there. So the vast majority of of differences are variations like that. The next largest group are to do with word order. So in Greek, there are many different ways to say the same thing. So for example, um, in the ESV uh, study Bible, it it was flagging that if you take a phrase like, Jesus loved John... In Greek, that can be expressed at least 16 different ways without changing the meaning of that statement. And if you take spelling and other variations into account, actually there can be hundreds of different ways to say Jesus loved John. So that's another huge part of the variations that we see. Not significant, just different ways that things were expressed and worded. Here's the incredible thing, friends. Less than 1% of viable variations in the text are significant for the meaning of that text. So across all these copies, less than, which is remarkable in ancient literature, less than 1% have any significance with regard to the meaning of that particular text. And those are the ones, by the way, which get flagged in your footnotes where it says, or it could be this. That's because there is a possibility that it could be read in a different way. But here's the other encouraging thing. No textual problem contradicts any key doctrine from the Bible. So of that less than 1%, none of those issues bring us to a point of critical confusion as followers of Jesus. Why am I saying all this? I'm saying all this to flag that John 7, 53 to 8, 11 is not the normal reality. We can have incredible confidence in the authenticity and therefore the authority of the scriptures. What a gift from God that we do not need to nervously hope that this book is valid and true. Now, very briefly, why should these verses then not be here? And I'm just going to list the five reasons. First is this, the earliest and most reliable manuscripts don't include it. Just jumps from 752 right down to 812, and that flows perfectly well when you read it like that. Secondly, those manuscripts that do include it, it's in lots of different places. So for the most part, it's here, but it's also in three different locations in chapter 7. It's at the very end of John in some copies, and then in other places, it's at the end of Luke, which is even more surprising because you know there's a difference between Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and the way they were written, and the way John was written. Thirdly, why should it not be included here? When it is included in these manuscripts, it's often marked by asterisks or obelai. I was really happy that I could use the word obelai in my sermon today, uh, which is obelis, the plural of obelis, which is a little cross mark. And as people have copied these manuscripts, on many occasions they've marked this section, which often suggests that there was a question as to whether it should be there in the first place. The fourth reason is that the language is very unusual for John. He uses words 
uh, in this, or there are words used in this passage that he never uses elsewhere, especially, for example, mentioning the scribes in verse 3. John never says that elsewhere, and there's 13 other words used in this section that he never uses again. And then lastly, none of the church father's writings reference this passage for the first millennium of the church's history. So the confidence we can have in the rest of the scriptures, we actually, I don't believe, can or should have in these verses. And I just think it's better to acknowledge that while celebrating the incredible accuracy of the rest of the Bible. Now, having said that, let's read it. And then as we close, I just want to flag the truths of this passage, which are mentioned in other places in the scriptures. So let's read John 7:53. They each They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women, so what do you say? This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, there are wonderful things that we can celebrate about Jesus in the scriptures, also seen in these verses. Like I say, just briefly going to mention them. First of all, Jesus' heart for the downtrodden. These religious leaders come trying to catch Jesus out. They're using her. They're using her to trap him, to see if he will undermine the Old Testament law. Of course, they're ignoring certain parts of it. They're ignoring it that there is no man here before Jesus. You know, it's just her, right? It says a lot about what they're trying to do here in this story. But Jesus will not allow this woman to be used. He will not allow this woman to be trampled on. And here's the point. Jesus always had a heart for the downtrodden. Think of Zacchaeus hiding up a tree, the way Jesus engages him. Think of the lepers he touched, the woman with the issue of bleeding that he wouldn't allow to go away unnoticed, but called her daughter. The children he welcomed and lifted up as examples, though they were cared little for in that day. The woman who poured perfume out on Jesus' feet, who others called a sinner, but Jesus appreciated and celebrated. Jesus welcomes those who the world has no time for, those who are used and abused and broken and needy. And we don't need John 7.53 to 8.11 to know this, but it's a wonderful illustration of that reality. Secondly, we see in this passage Jesus' wisdom. I don't know about you, but I just smile as I read the many accounts of the times where people come and try and trap Jesus. And uh, whether that's about marriage or about money or about the Old Testament law, they come and try and entrap him. 
And Jesus is just always so wise. He will not be trapped by them or by us. And we see that right across the New Testament. And it's illustrated here in these verses. Thirdly, we see Jesus' mercy in coming to save, not condemn. In this story, the woman is left standing before Jesus, all her accusers gone, no one to condemn her. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus did not come to the earth, friends, to condemn it. We've seen this already in John. Look at chapter three, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Our sin does count against us. There is a guilty verdict from God on the evil of sin in this world. Praise God, right? You think of what has been done to you, what has been done to others, what is going on in this world. Thank you, God, that sin is not just swept under the carpet. It is condemned by God as the evil that it is. But Jesus came, friends, so that we might not live under that condemnation. And whoever believes in him is not condemned. We see the same thing in John chapter 12, verse 46. Let's read it together. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him for I did not come to judge the world but to save the world. Did not come to condemn or to judge. Friends, what mercy there is in Jesus. And John chapter 8, 1 to 11 is a lovely and powerful illustration of that. And that's the way I would encourage you to think of these verses. An incredible story that likely happened that illustrates the mercy of God that we see across the pages of the New Testament. It's everywhere. Come to Jesus today and know his mercy. And finally, live from that reality. The fourth thing we see in the scriptures, illustrated in this passage, is that Jesus' grace changes us. When Jesus meets us in our sin and we find his forgiveness and mercy, it changes us. We've already seen this in chapter five at the healing at the pool. Jesus finds the man in the temple and says, see you are well, go now, sin no more. And we'll see this again and again. John chapter 15, whoever, Jesus says, abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. We see in John 21, as Peter is restored by Jesus saying, do you love me? And then he's commissioned from that place of, of the removal of shame after his denial. He's commissioned into God's work. Feed my sheep. John Piper said the following about this passage. When they are all gone, Jesus ends the story saying to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Not neither do I condemn you so it doesn't matter if you commit adultery, but I am reestablishing righteousness in your life on the basis of an experience of grace. Don't commit adultery anymore, not mainly because you fear stoning, but because you have met God and have been rescued by his grace. 
saved by grace. Dear friends, this is how God changes us. And this passage is a wonderful illustration of that. We can hear Jesus' words today. In me, you are free from condemnation. Go and sin no more. Friends, we can have wonderful confidence in how this book has come to us. Listen to what American evangelist R.A. Torrey writes. Every type of destruction that human philosophy, human science, human reason, human art, human cunning, human force, and human brutality could bring to bear against a book has been brought to bear against this book. And yet the Bible stands absolutely unshaken today. At times, almost all the wise and great of the earth have been pitted against the Bible and only an obscure few for it. Yet it has stood and yet it will stand into the coming months and years of Hillview Community Church. And may God teach us through this incredible word. There are so many scriptures that we can trust completely that speak of Jesus' heart for the downtrodden. His wisdom, his mercy in not leaving us in our condemnation and his grace that changes us to live for him forevermore. Come to this God today. I plead with you confidently on the authority of God's word. He is here and ready to receive us and to send us out for his sake this coming week. Let's pray. Father, what a gift that we have these scriptures breathed out by God. Lord, humble us today and day by day as we come around your word. Lord, we just confess it's, it's hard sometimes to see the wonders of the scriptures. Sometimes we get confused. Sometimes we find it tough. We just confess that before you, Lord. We confess that maybe in the last little while we've struggled to read the scriptures. Lord, we just pray that you would give us a vision of the wonder, the miracle of this book, the way that you have preserved it over time, the way that you inspired these writers to pen these words, the way that they were carefully copied and the incredible accuracy and confidence that we can have as we read these scriptures before us. God, thank you that we live in this time of history when we have such amazing access to the living, breathing word of God. And I pray, Lord, that in that we would see Jesus. We would see you in all your splendor and majesty in all your kindness and mercy. And Lord, we would be changed as we think about what you're calling us into this coming week. Help us live in light of your grace. Help us live free from condemnation for your sake. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.